Hey guys, just a quick heads up that this is the interview taken from the full The Gym Session podcast. So if you'd like to listen to the complete episode, you can find it on the Footy Live app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Buzzsprout. If you're enjoying the content, don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, and share. If you're not, try to do it anyway so I can keep my job. Uh, That's all from me. Enjoy the interview and do all that stuff I said before so I can get my job. Today's guest is one of the most entertaining, skillful and clutch footballers the AFL world has ever seen. With four All-Australian selections, three premierships, two best and fairest and a Brownlow medal, to name just some of his incredible achievements, this Hall of Famer's list of highlights is brighter than the bleached blonde hair he sported for the majority of his 325-game career. This man left us in awe on the field while equally engaged off it with media stints that provided never-before-seen honesty and insights. After selling tickets, newspapers, and a few extra beers while fans stayed to watch his post-game handstands. He's now selling houses up north to support his wonderful family. It is my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Jason Akamanis to the podcast. Uh, g'day, Jimmy. Yes, uh, no, real estate is my day job. Uh, as, as I know your, so your partner, your very pregnant partner, yep. will also understand what real estate's like. But yes, she's a, she's a crazy time here. Also, we have an AR company called, which is augmented reality called Zucas, uh, which you'll hear about. It was a startup we did many years ago probably four years ago now and now we've we've uh, invented the world's first compliant and uh and worldwide current a cryptocurrency called zucoin so that comes out next week so it's been a long journey but yeah. you know i'll stick to my day job sorry about the noise in the background a couple of my uh workers good. are in here being <laughs> baboons as they are but it's all good it's all good, uh, good mate and you, you're saying obviously on wednesday is your, is your half day you're playing a bit of golf later <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so yeah. i actually yeah it's a couple of things about golf golf has been a i started when i retired at 33 so mm. that was 11 years ago now i'm 44 this year so well, I'm already 44, but um, uh, yeah, I went to Q school, which is to turn pro. So I had two years doing that. So I was off like scratch and mm. playing against guys who were off plus four and plus five and amazingly good players. Didn't quite make it, but I didn't care. I was there just to see how well I'd go and always wanted to test myself. I ended up catting for a guy who used to train with me, a guy called Zach Murray. And Zach was, he's on the European tour now. I'm not sure if he'll keep his card, but he's uh, he was off plus 6.5 and and uh, to caddy for him to see where that level is, it's mm. a bit like, uh, you know, Craig Bolton's of the world, who's a super player, really good, couldn't quite make it at the lines, ended up going down and, and doing a great job with Sydney and their captain and sent off back. But, you know, to be on the outer ring for the first time when myself, Vossi, Nige, Nige Lappin and Luke Bauer and, and you know, Alistair Lynch and you just name all the stars are in the middle getting regular games. Uh, you just sort of felt like with golf I was on the fringe. But good fun. So now yeah. I only play. I've been playing, uh, I think I looked at, I, I, I think I've played once once a month for the last uh, 12 months, so like 20 games where I used to play five comp games a week. So this is like my third Wednesday in a row with one of my, my great mates, his dad, who's in my club. So he's he's not too bad. It's always entertaining, but, yeah, we'll see how we get today. But half day, you know, get out there. It's, it's 20 – was it today? 27, 20, 20, Jeez, 25 or 26 today. Oh. 
and I'm regretting wearing these pants. I've got to tell you, I'll be wishing I was in shorts. I'm just telling my, <laughs> my, my one of my one of my marketing uh, co-workers, yes, it's, uh, it's crazy hot. But anyway, that's winter in Queensland, I suppose. Yeah, that's it. No, it's cold down here in Melbourne. Hey, you 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 said that uh, golf uh, taught you a lot about life more than you thought. What taught you more, golf or footy? Oh no, footy footy taught me everything I need to know about life. Let me tell you, because footy for me. Like even as a kid, you know, I'd always be getting tagged. And, you, you know, I play Masters footy now, so we've got a game on the weekend. And, and every, I played this, I think it was my fourth game. So we play every second week. And I missed a couple of weeks with uh, injury from Div 1 basketball, which I play with the next uh, Brisbane Bullets team, uh, NBL team. So, you know, they're all my age. Great fellas are a little bit older. It's always good to be around good players. But I think footy teaches you about perseverance. But... Footy's a different sort of game for the mind because you can get into the automatic part of the brain. So you, we talk about it with, say, baseball. Or so when they throw the pitch, you, you can't logically think about when the ball's coming, for example, mm-hmm. that you're about to hit it. You, you don't have enough time. So it's a very instinctual kind of part of the brain, and you do that with repetition. Footy's very much like that. Where golf is, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of time to think. You've got a lot of calculations to make. You, you might have wind. You've got distance. You've got club choice, all that kind of stuff, uh, shot shape. I think, I think the one thing that, that golf taught me that footy, footy was harder. So in the sense, when you play footy, you've got other blokes who can let you down. Mm. It's pretty simple. But when you play golf, you've only got yourself letting yourself down. And to be hard on yourself in footy, is okay. Like I was quite hard on myself, which also drove me to be better and make less errors. And with golf, sometimes there's just no place to hide. And when you're having a bad round and you're just hitting it like crap or you're chunking it or you're missing parts or you're, you're driving it off in the trees, you know, nine times out of, out of 10, it's, it's probably more accepting the result. And so I had to do a lot of psychology and it's a guy called Joseph Parent, Dr. Joseph Parent, who talks about uh, Zen golf and the understanding that, you know, life's unfair. Golf's very unfair. You can get really lucky and really unlucky all in one hole. And you've got to be able to work with that and have that uh, that solitude of the mind to say, oh, Jesus, off in the bunkers. But then also how the mind works, you say, well, hang on, you're great out of bunkers and you're a great chipper and you're a great putter and that's just one bad shot. You're like just understanding and life's so much like that. And your wife will tell you, She'll come home, I'm telling you. She'll, only you will know when she complains about the absolute shitheads who are vendors who will say, oh, my house is worth this much and unrealistic prices and it's hurting yeah. the sale. Every day we have to deal with people like that and then people that don't get back to us and they think and they, they treat real estate agents because they don't have a lot of trust in them just in a general sense. You know, they think they can talk to us like crap. Let me tell you, when you're a full-time Hall of Famer and you walk the streets and you talk footy, that don't have that issue. But when you're dealing with their biggest property or you're playing golf or you're dealing with the most emotional thing they've ever got, all of yeah. a sudden that, you know, you're the you're the problem, you've done everything wrong, you haven't sold my house. No, 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 nothing wrong with your house. You just your price is just it's a crap house or it's a great house, but you know, your price is two thousand two hundred thousand mm-hmm. more than it's worth. So all these things I always think about when I play golf and I teach my eleven uh sorry, thirteen year old daughter who's a really good golfer. Yeah. She's like we played sub juniors last week and she, they play nine holes and she's off the red tee. So where the, the adult women play, cause she's in B grade and you know, she's a great driver. She had the stinkingest drives you've ever seen. I think the second hole, it had rained here the last few days before that there was one puddle 
one mm. little puddle and she sort of duck hooked and it's landed in the only puddle in 400 metres and she had to take a drop. And, you know, by the end of the hole, she's crying and she's saying, I'm playing crap and stop yeah. it, Dad, stop it, stop giving me, you know, things to work on, all this kind of stuff. And mm. you can even see as a 13-year-old just how the mind and how your expectations just can lead you astray and you just get too emotional about it. And that's, you don't have to be a robot, but we do have emotional, emotional beings, no doubt, but there's still that part of you that learns how not to get so involved, whether it's a grand final or coming down the 18th where you're five under as I was couple of days ago, like, you know, you're playing a great, great round and then not getting ahead of yourself or thinking of the result, just saying, no, 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 just two more shots, one more putt. Let's just do it properly, hit a good swing, send it down there, you know. So it's a, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but mm-hmm. golf does teach you about uh, how much you can rely on yourself and that it's not that bad and it's only a game and it's all right, but you can, you'll get better and you'll play better next round. We'll be back after a quick break. You just touched on then your, your daughter's mindset at 13 playing golf. What was your mindset like? Because it wasn't an easy upbringing for you. Obviously, you grew up in, in Mildura first with your brother and, and your mother. You've said you, you weren't really well off. Moved to Queensland at eight. You found out at 13 your, your father wasn't your real father. Then you have a serious accident, rollerblading, um, leads to a blood clot, severe depression. They say you're never going to play footy again, Acker. You end up playing your mother passes away while you're still young, your first year of AFL. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, that was a, you know, you look back and I was just saying before, and I said, a, a keg here just mm-hmm. heard me say, but Zen Buddhism is, uh, I'm not a religious man, but they will always talk about, if you ever listen to anyone talk about Zen Buddhism, they always talk about the good and the bad. Everything has both. So even when it's great, there's, there's also a bad sign in it. So you're successful, you made a million bucks selling real estate or a billion dollars with your startup and you're loaded. Well, what's the bad? You could say there's no bad, but there is. It's you know, did anyone tell you about the six years where you worked in those companies and never got paid a cent? Uh, did they tell you about the investment that it took as a kid to to work on both sides of the body mm-hmm. to get to into a position to be good enough? Did they tell you about the bad side of being a good player? going into the ones as a 17, 18 year old and getting tagged by these huge fully grown men. I talk about that. Mm. And that's the good and the bad. And I, I think like not having a dad, my case is really important, you know, so I've always been lucky enough to want and find good leaders. So older men, I've got a lot of older guys who would fulfill that role, but my coaches were those guys as well. And so I was really fortunate is not probably the word. You still got to be listening, but I have some, had some great coaches along the journey who did one, believe in me two tell me how to just do things a little better. And, and she's just a, a little bit of love how much that, that goes the right way. Obviously nearly dying at 15, the bad thing was obviously sitting at home for three months uh, with double vision, 
a splitting headache, um, you know, lost seven, so I lost 10 kilos in seven days and been told to never play sport. That was horrible. Yeah. But the good in that that no one talks about is I had the time, my mum gave me these bunch of these self-help books, which I read and love reading since then. So I wasn't really a reader. I was too busy worried about going outside because all I wanted to do was go outside because I had so much yeah. energy. And so I read the books. All of a sudden, I realized I had that year off that a lot of times if I if I, I look back and if, I reckon if I didn't have that year off, not playing footy and towards the back end of the year, I was able to run and do athletics again. Mm-hmm. But without that year off, I have no doubt I would have suffered burnout and would have struggled as a 17, 18 year old where what happened was I was allowed to go back and play the next year, albeit with a helmet. But I ended up making the state size as a 16 year old now in the 17s. The other good thing that happened is I go back, I go back after three months off, go back to Wavell Heights where I was going at the time. And I've been on my, you know, hadn't done anything, no training. And I was able to just do a little bit of running. I win the 100, the 200, the 400. I actually did 52 seconds in the 400, which is still, I think, the the record for Wavell in that age group. And that day, the guy who actually worked at, at Wavell Heights was the head athletics coach at Nudgee College. And he comes over and he, he helps me get a scholarship there. So with no money, a lot of talent, and just a, a little bit of the universe looking after you after that horrible three months, I end up going to one of the most prestigious uh, boy, all boys rugby union school called Nudgee College. And, you know, in my grades, like Elton Flatley and a guy called Sean Hardman who played in the Reds, like they're, they're the most famous uh, and the most amount of Wallaby cap players out of any school in Australia come from that school. So I go there, you know, and I get that scholarship. And, you know, without those that, that, that particular year being 15, the good and the bad, that's all there. And it then probably produced the hardness having seen it wasn't really so much depression. It was more just that lack of being able to do anything. And then no one tells you when you get a head knock, the, the brain lets off all these chemicals. So you have these really high highs and these really low lows. It's like they talk about a lot with, you know, bipolar disease. They, they, they just have that, that unlucky sort of uh, hormone production in the brain. Well, I had that for three months as well. So I'd be feeling great yeah. and then be feeling really shit. And so I've never been so understanding of of the plight of a human being by being isolated, can't go to school, can't be around groups, have no purpose, read a bunch of really good books that get me, start to get me on the journey, which end up becoming a, a really solid and wonderful AFL career. But it wouldn't have happened, I don't reckon, without that horrible year being 15. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that the growing up without a father, you relied on on mentors and, and your coaches became like your, your dad, basically you had Robert Walls, John Northey, Lee Matthews, uh, who had the biggest influence on you? Uh, the biggest influence had to be Dr. Phil Jaunty. So Dr. Phil, oh, yeah. uh, he's still a mate of mine now. He's 71 now. He's around my house not that long ago. And, and he's still, I still use his program, his performance personality profiles with, with groups that I work with. I did it when I coached. Uh, I think, I think his understanding of the mind, he talks about, so, so, so the way my personality profile is set up, my computer is completely different to, say, my wife's computer, uh, which is not a bad thing or a good thing, but she will dwell on things for days, she'll work through it. She's, she's obviously, we're much older, so you get better at not worrying about half the stuff. But being an athlete and having a lot of similar guys, which we you do in footy, so you don't see a lot of fearless, for example, um, Nigel Lappin is probably the most famous Hall of Famer thinker feeler. Usually they never make it. My wife's a thinker feeler, even though she talks yeah. a lot. She looks like a mozzie. 
uh, but she she talks like a monkey. But of course, she's not really. She's always processing and doing things at a different speed than say I would. Where I'll be far more outward. So I'll be talking more. I'll be uh, you know when I need structure, I'll get structure. I'll do the list and and all that kind of stuff. Where Nige and and say her very similar personality. They would have to methodically work it out. Like before a game, Nige would be sitting there. You, you, no point talking to him. He's already worried about every mistake he's going to make. He could have 35 touches, which he did often. And after the game and for, for days after, he's thinking about that one handball where he, he handballed at my foot and I got ended up getting tackled and it cost the team. And that that's the way his brain is set up where I would move forward quickly. I say, okay, well, I don't want to do that again. What I had, I fix it. I'll go back to training. I'll, I'll do that. Make sure I'm under pressure, ready to go. Yeah. And when we had the lines with Phil Jauncey, we had so many enforcer thinkers, thinkers enforcer, very, very common. So out of the starting 22 in our premiership year, 16 of the 22 were either enforcer thinker or enforcer mozzie. So enforcer mozzie, like a Justin Lepich, for example, or Martin Pike, who's enforcer thinker. So before the game, you know, they're over there talking absolute shit and telling bad jokes, but they their mind needs that because they yeah. can't be like Nige sitting there thinking about it or Marcus Ashcroft, who's a, just a total thinker, where they're methodically going through what they're going to do under every situation, where Lepo and myself and Vossi and, and to a lesser extent, uh, you know, the Scott brothers, Luki Power, Simon Blacks and Mozzie, so he'd be buzzing around. So every time Simon was quiet, we'd say, hey, come on, man. Get talking, get yeah. talking. Craig yeah. McRae, you know, he's a mozzie, mozzie thinker. So, and understanding that really had a huge effect on me mm. knowing me, but then me knowing my teammates, but also how to work with them. So even now when I talk to my guys here, I know to talk differently to Mike than I would say he, to James mm. or Manny or, or the other stuff. And that's that's the influence he had on me. And I still use it today. And I, I have no doubt everyone I talk to, um, for the rest of my life, I still use it. So that's that's the biggest influence I've had, and that's the beauty of psychology. If you can understand yeah. the brain a bit better, it's not a bad thing. Mm. Well, it's interesting. He was there for a while, obviously, uh, Phil Jauncey, but 98, you, you guys finished last. Uh, 99, Lee Matthews comes on and, and turns it around really, really quickly. What what turned it around so quick? Yeah, a couple of things. So the, we got a bit lucky. At the end of 98, we, John Norley got sacked. We had Roger Merritt for about seven or eight games, and they're going to give the job to Rog. But I think Andrew Island, who was the CEO at the time, just thought, you know, we need we need someone here. We can get a premiership coach. And at that stage, Lee was in the media. He, he sort of won at Collingwood in 95, got sacked a few years later, you know. And eventually Lee, who said no a bunch of times, it came around. It's not a bad list. Hmm. A couple of things happened with Lee from when he started with us. So we only had three players come in. From that team, basically, they come last to the premiership team. That was Martin Pike. We got him out of North Melbourne, who was a free agent at that stage, what they call free agent. He pretty much had, had no job, so we picked him up pretty cheap. Mel Michael, who, of course, Mel and I played in juniors, uh, you know, the career. He's one of the, the great athletes of all time. I mean, he played state basketball, state water polo, and state Aussie rules as well. So super yeah. athlete, but yet the Bears, for some reason, overlooked him and Max Hutchin. They were on – I was in the same squads they were, and they let those two go. They were – you know, bloody Hall of Famer back, uh, sorry, fullbacks. So we pick up Mal and then because we come last, we pick up Desi Headland, number one draft pick. And what Lee did, he took, so he took myself, Justin Lepage, uh, Chris Johnson and Darrell White, all forwards and put us all in defence. And that gave us a lot more 
flair, but also the ability with the speed of, of what we can do and read the play forwards tend to be reacting a bit quicker. So as defenders, you know, it was really hard to score against us. And Lee just said, you know, our defence is is the issue we can score well. We just need to be able to tackle and pressure. Yeah. And so he brought that. But the, the other big thing, which is arguably the most important thing Lee did was he got rid of, uh, we had Jim Hustis, who was our physio. He brings in Peter Stanton and Victor Popoff, who are like Olympic physios. He brings in Andrew Smith and Paul McConnell, amazing doctors. And that support staff off the field, he actually said to the club, you've got to invest more in these guys. We need better staff. Mm-hmm. And so Lee's genius to take those four players to defence, bring in an amazing amount of off-field staff, it just changed the place. And so that year, 99, we, we finished, we had a prelim. We lost to North Melbourne who won that that year. And then 2000, we finished fifth. And then, of course, you know, we won uh, triple triple premierships and then pretty lucky if it wasn't for that fat Cypriot, Andrew Dimitrio, we probably would have won four, no doubt. So that that was the genius and what Lee did. The talent was there. Defence stepped up. Changed, changed the the sort of deck chairs around a bit, made the players go and play in different spots, but then brought the off-field staff. And I think that's the key. That was that was all together. And then Phil, Dr. Phil, actually for the first time, so he was there when Wolsey was there. Wolsey yeah. didn't listen to him. Wolsey thought he knew everything. Uh, yeah. But Lee saw the value in Dr. Phil and then yeah. put all the profiling in into the program and Lee just loved it. He's just like, mm. man, this makes total sense to me. And and for Lee, he needed that because he was always confused about, well, what, why is that player doing that? And what, yeah. why, what can't, how do I talk to that guy? Brilliant. Mm. Did that extend off field as well? Was the culture strong? Did you go out and, and drink together or spend a lot of time off field? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is back in the day where all we did was do beer and even gambling wasn't that big. And most of the guys weren't really like that, but good mm. drinking culture came out of the Victorian teams that we had in the Wolsey era. Because Craig Lambert, Alison Lynch, Andrew Buse, and mad as mad as mad can be on the on the gas. But it was a, a good culture. We stuck together mm. off the field. Obviously, Jonathan Brown was really young at that stage. He, I think, he won. So he was 18, 19, 20. So his first, second, third year, won three flags. So guys would come in, obviously Martin Pike, you know, you don't want to give him two beers, but he, uh, you know, gets off his chops and has, has a ball. So we had a, a really good sort of culture off the field and on the field, yeah. but we're very, because of those personality types too, they're very, very, very strong. Mm. And which generally means you can be a strong personality, but they would tell you when they were upset. Uh, and at training, like every training session, because you've got so many sort of really big alpha males and we're talking 16, like I said, out of 22, there'd always be a fight or mm. someone would punch someone and say, why don't you shut up leper and punch him in the chest. And, you know, so to Brad, Brad, don't do that. And Yankees arm, we, we had enough respect for each other, but of course the competition within the group was strong, which meant that when I went and played against opposition teams, my training, I had the Scott brothers on me when I was at half forward. I'd have to go up against Michael Voss in the midfield and then I'd have to tag, you know, Simon Black. Like, that, that was my training. Yeah. And so it's, it reminds me a lot of, say, even the Bulls you see with one-on-one with Jordan and Pippen. Mm. Like, he would destroy you. <laughs> and I would go up and get destroyed by Vossi and, and win a couple here and there and get better and better. That was his training. Mm. So for me to go, as an example, we'd go and play the opposition. It was easier than, yeah. than the bloody training session. So it was training 100%. So you went flat out at training? All the time. There's no yeah. other way, really. I mean, yeah. you, as a coach, you always go, hey, listen, Jimmy, why don't you just, uh, you know, just back it off a little bit today? Mate, with that group, they had no chance. They were just like, 
you know, even the running sessions are competitive. You know, blokes yeah. are, you do two hundreds and you're bashing in the blokes just getting around the bend. It just the way it was, it was good. Yeah. Uh, you hated it in, in some ways, but then you loved it once you saw the success. And I, that's what competition is in groups. It's really, you know, the, the more that that is within the group, you'll find it. It translates every day of the week when you go and play opposition teams. How much did Lee let you drink? Did he have a problem if you if you drank too much off field? <laughs> Man, this is the greatest. This is the greatest story. Like so, Lee, Lee, Lee. When we would win, he would have a couple of beers, you know, yeah. and it sort of went on. And, and one day, I think it was probably the I don't know which season it was. I think it might have been the two thousand one season. So we you know we're going right. Mm-hmm. We might have even been after that, but we're sitting in a meeting, and and Lee's like, uh, "Well, we're going seven day break, a six day break, an eight day break." So what do you reckon, boys? So he throws it out to the group. Yeah. What do you reckon you should drink on a six-day break? And, you know, it's pretty much you don't drink anything because there's no point. It's a short week. You're not going to have enough time to turn around and and that's all fine. So pretty much no one drank or there'd be a couple uh, might have might have had a few, but there wouldn't be that. Wouldn't be a night out. You would never see him out. He goes, well, what about a seven-day break? And, of course, you know, no one wants to answer the question because yeah. Lee – you just know, no matter what the answer is, it's going to be wrong. And of course, you know, players being players and knowing full well within the group on a seven day turnaround, there'd be 20 of them out at the nightclub if they didn't get injured or a corky. Um, you know, if they had girlfriends or not, it wouldn't matter. We'd just be out having a drink or after the game, you know. But of course, we all knew that. But no one, I think Lee, Lee was always suspicious, you know. <laughs> And Lee would have this, which I use with my kids, and I tell my team, he goes, Ma, if I see one, it's like the tip of the iceberg, there's another 10. We always say, there's another 10. If one of you goes out, I know there'd be another 10. And so we'd always laugh at that. And yeah. it's pretty much true, actually. If you see life, it's, it's like that. Yeah. Anyway, then he gets to like an eight-day break. He's like, what do you reckon, boys? Eight-day break. How many beers do you reckon you'd have on an eight-day break? Well, of course, everyone is just not saying anything. No yeah. one wants to say anything. No one wants to talk. And Lee's now getting pissed off. Mm. He's like, well, <laughs> he goes, well, since no one wants to answer me, I'll ask you guys. <laughs> and then he points to Clark Keating Crackers, my great mm. mate Crackers, who uh, was in here. He's in here every week. He's mm. a realtor as well these days. But, you know, Crackers our superstar, Mr. September Ruckman, you know, he's six foot, six, foot six you know, big guy. And he goes, Crackers, what do you reckon? How many beers do you reckon you should have on an eight-day break? And Clark Keating didn't even think about it, Crackers. He just goes, well, no, well, naturally, Lee, uh, on an eight, uh, you know, on a, on a seven-day break, I'd probably have four or five, you know. It'd be good to go out with the boys and have that. And eight-day break, oh, I don't know, probably have about 12 beers. <laughs> Lee goes, 12 beers? Oh, like you should have seen Lee, he just went, <laughs> It was it was like the worst answer he could have. Been. It was his worst nightmare, and we we're all pissed at ourselves laughing. Yeah. We knew that you know twelve beers more like fourteen. Jeez, yeah. Anyway, Lee's like, ah, I think that's a bit excessive. Maybe <laughs> ten, maybe eight. You know. Anyway, so the meeting finishes, mm. and naturally, Crackers goes to the toilet, and <laughs> Crackers tells me he's in the urinal after he had this big urinal, and uh, Lee comes around the corner and he's standing next to Crackers, and he goes. Uh, you, you were only joking about that 12 beers, weren't you, Crackers? Crackers goes, oh, yeah, 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 Lee. No, no, I've been <laughs> 12 beers. <laughs> so that was the culture. It was pretty funny, but yeah. you know, Lee, Lee never knew how much we probably drank. But, you know, he was so 
fanatical about skin folds. You just didn't yeah. really want to. Obviously, today all those boys are on bloody pills and who knows what they're on, illegal substances because they don't want to get fat. But, yeah, back then uh, the skin fold suffered, but we didn't care. <laughs> That's it. Well, it didn't affect you much either. I mean, especially you, 2001, uh, Brownlow medal, your first flag. Hey, what do you remember from that night, the Brownlow? Because I think you were the first winner who wasn't actually in Melbourne. You weren't actually at the uh, at the um, venue. That's with, right, yeah. With no, Bruce very McAvaney. good. Yeah. Good Jimmy. Yes, that was well. What happened? So, because we got in the grand final, two things happened in September 2001. One ANSET collapsed, so we didn't even know how we we're getting down the grand final because that we were saw uh, fly ANSET. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the other thing was obviously September 11. But we Lee didn't want us to go down for the stupid bloody uh, night and fly back and fly down again. He was like, eh, it makes no sense. Very, very calm, intelligent decision, I would have thought. So Lee and Andrew Demetrio, who's the CEO at the time, having this argy-bargy about it. When I look back, I could see why, because Andrew knew who the winner was, because they always know, and he was very adamant that we had to be there. And, of course, Lee's like, no, nah, we're not flying down, flying back, flying down, piss off. So Andrew reluctantly says, okay, well, we'll get some cameras set up. And, you know, this is not – this is – most of the games are televised. It's not like a Foxtel was just coming in, et cetera. Mm. So – Lee goes, oh, it's a win, boys. Let's just go to the, the function. Wear your club suit. It's all good. So we do that. I rock in there. I remember I just got a new Mazda tribute that day, so I was feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> I, I go up the stairs there to the Legends room, you know, Ackermanis room these days is the chance of name. And we rock in there. And and I had a good, that first half of the year, we we were sort of around eight the first half of the year, but I had played unbelievable. And I, and I don't joke about it. I carried that midfield in that first half. I played so well. It was really good. And that's where I got a lot of my three votes and stuff. Late in games, kicking goals, but, you know, dominated good three quarters. And the back half of the year wasn't as good. I'd sort of put on a kilo or two. I probably just had too much chocolate. And I ended up getting a vote in round 21, which, of course, down in Geelong got three votes. The bloke tagged me. David Clark got two votes. I don't know how the brand works, but I didn't care because now I was ahead and one round to go. Uh, I remember because we're not drinking anyway, so we're, I'm yeah. too busy to worry about the grand final. And, and halfway through the night, they come and interviewed me. So I was one of the first guys ever to be interviewed during the count. Normally, everyone's just on the gas and no one gets interviewed. Well, now you see that they all get interviewed. Back yeah. then, I was the first guy and they... Bill McDonald comes over and he said, oh, okay, how are you going? You're feeling pretty good about things? I said, yeah, I'm going all right, but, you know, I'm pretty relaxed. I'm, I don't think I'm going to win it because the second half of you wasn't as good as the first and, you know, whatever. And Andrew McLeod, I'm looking at uh, Andrew and I'm, I played in Australia with him the year before, two years before, and we've been mates for a long time, played against each other. And I, he had a great year. He won all the all the awards. He was mm-hmm. brand low favourite, so... But because people didn't see a lot of our games at that stage, people didn't realise just how good a year I'd had early in the year and of course that set me up and and I remember our Peter Blucher was our media man he comes over to me just after that interview and he said mate you you, you better get ready because you might win this and you better get a speech ready and of course I didn't prepare anything because you're not, not really expecting yeah. to win anyway and then sure as shit I won and I get up there and Bruce McAvaney had way too many reds um, as he does on those nights, he doesn't tell you, but he is he's, he's a bit of a lightweight old Bruce. And he starts asking me some questions and I'm just in, in shock, but I go down and I have a cup of tea with Lee afterwards in his office. And, and Lee's like, Oh, well, that's awesome. Great. Congratulations. Could hardly sleep. I bounced out of bed the next day to yeah. go to training. And of course the boys at rapid, 
Yeah. Know, thankfully, I had a grand final focus on. I couldn't really drink my own bathwater too much, Jimmy. <laughs> That's right. Well, in that grand final, you kick two goals, you get the flag. I wanted to ask you about the grannies because you always seem to play great footy when it mattered. Now, you tore your groin or your abductor in the first quarter of the 2002 term. Uh, grand final you kicked the winning goal 2003 though uh unbelievable you could have won the norm smith that day kicked five goals which which is your favorite oh look mentally the favorite would be 2002 but the physically and mentally 2003 because 2001 being a brandler medalist it's a lot of pressure i didn't realize how much pressure i had blokes walking down the street here in brisbane going congratulations i put money on you win the norm smith like what Norm Smith, you want me to be the best player on the field in the grand final so you can win money. But it's like stuff your teammates, man. You just play well and I can win money. So I'd never seen that before. So it was, it was a hard year, but, you know, played okay. 2002, like in the wet, I could be the best player playing in the wet. So I love the wet. And I look out the morning, I'm just so wrapped. I was so looking forward to the grand final. I knew I was going to have a big game. And to do my right adductor, and I didn't know at the time that I tore it half off the bone, but it was it was very painful. And I couldn't run. I had no power. And it probably goes to show all those years of practice and, and, and being a great kick on both sides, mm. coming handy. Uh, deep late in the game, I think I had 14 touches, but it just had no n- none of my normal power. Did some good things too, which I'm quite surprised at considering the injury. They wouldn't, stra- they only strapped it up. They wouldn't give me any painkillers or anything like that. So I had to endure two hours of the mm-hmm. worst pain in the freezing cold to keep that winning goal was awesome. But no doubt, five goals, two in a grand final. Like, no, who, who does that? Alone, uh, I mean, Norm's been medalist. I saw him won that that year, yeah. 36 touches, some record, but I don't really see him. But I certainly remember. The goals, I did kick three, I think, late in the game when the game was over. So there's a bit of an argument there. But in the end, what do you do? You know, it's good to play well on the big stage. I played well the year after, but we didn't win. No, everyone sort of forgets that. I think I had three touches in the first quarter and a half, kicked three goals. So I was looking a bit dangerous. But you, who plays in four grand finals? I mean, mm. it's pretty rare. I know that they have, have, have happened, but... Yeah, to play well in the big stage, 2003, there's nothing like it. Mm. And you probably had to play well, didn't you, in the in the in the 2003 oh, yeah. grand final? Because yeah. during the week, you uh, yeah, you let something slip that uh, Nigel Lappin had broken ribs, and Lee wasn't too happy with that, was he? Oh no, he Lee was ravable, Jimmy. I've yeah. never seen Lee so mad. He was. Yeah. He didn't want to talk to me. He said to uh, our our head of football at the time, Gabby Allen, Graham Allen. He said. At the end of this game, you trade him. I'd never want him in this club again. And then went out and kicked five goals too. So that really, yeah. uh, I literally saved my job there and ended up playing yeah. many more years after. He's like, job for life, job for life. <laughs> but yeah, I talking about knives, like, you know, everyone is upset that I mentioned it, which is which is understandable because, you know, I'm in the bloody press conference and talking about, oh, no, I just got sore ribs. What I should have said was, yeah, 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 he copped the knock. It was actually Sean Hartley, his fellow teammate yeah. in 2001, North Street medalist that got him. But I was like, yeah, yeah, he's got, he's got rib, got broken ribs. Oh, broken ribs. That was a dumb thing to do. So poor Nige, poor Nige had to cop a, on a Friday, a fitness test with Aaron Shattuck because he was emergency. So what do you think Aaron's doing? Aaron's, Aaron's giving him both yeah. barrels because he will get in the team yeah. if Nigel doesn't play. And in that, doing that and Lee sort of overzealousness trying to make sure he was right to go. Nigel punches a lung. So when we won the flag in 2003, obviously kicked five goals too. Everyone's happy. We won three flags. Nigel had to drive back because he couldn't take the plane all the way back from Melbourne to join us on Mad Monday. It was was crazy poor Nigel. But everyone's upset that that I said that and put Nigel in that position. 
And it's true. I, that, that was bad. That was bad. And Lee, Lee is understandably upset and should have been. He probably still is today, but he, I think he's over it now that I put him in that position. Mm-hmm. But I remember seeing Nige before the game and the doctors had drawn every one of his ribs, you know, in the, in the gap there where they had to put the anesthetic in because he was mm-hmm. in so much pain. And they put like something like eight, 18 jabs into that area. And eventually, even up to 45 minutes before the game, Nigel still wasn't right. And Nigel being Nige, Lee's like, well, we've got Chris Scott here and, you know, we need to make a decision. We're going to put the team sheet in. Mm. And Nige just gets up and all the pain killing had come in. And he's like, no, nah, I'm good. And walks out the room. And that was it. Nige played a pretty good game considering mm. he had a punctured lung and, and was awesome. And, you know, if you talk to Nige now, I'm telling you, and I've spoken to him about it, and I spoke to him a couple of years ago when we caught up when I used to live in Albury. He'd come up because he's from Chilton through Christmas and we catch up and and he says, uh, he said, don't ever mention it again. There's no, no problem from my end. Mate, yeah. don't ever worry about it. That's the kind of bloke Nigel is. He's like, yeah. it didn't worry me then. It doesn't worry me now. It, that happened. Yeah, I had broken ribs and that was unlucky to get a, a punctured lung with mm. Lee's crazy, silly you know, test, but it happened, but we won. So who cares? Don't worry about it. So yeah. good and bad, I suppose, good and bad. The public didn't like it and my teammates didn't like it. Lee didn't like it. But Nige, Nige yeah. was like, oh, I don't care. It's all good. Yeah, what a great bloke. Nice. That's he's, good. He's a super fella. Yeah. Hey, 2004, you mentioned earlier, you weren't very happy. You've, you, a lot of Lee Matthews, Brisbane players, yourself have mentioned that 2004, the AFL cost you. Can you just, for those who don't understand why, can you explain why 2004 sh- should have been Brisbane's premiership in your opinion. Yeah. So what they did was Andrew Dimitri and the AFL's agreement with the MCC was, and the MCG is to always have one final uh, per week at the G, mm. which is a dumb rule. And they've since changed it. But, you know, you feel for teams that had to go and play home games at the MCG. And West Coast, I remember, deserved the home final, uh, ended up having to play the G against the Bulldogs. The Bulldogs beat them. West Coast get thrown out. Mm. So for us, there's two problems with that Andrew Demetria did. They enforced that rule, which Lee was ropeable. And I mean ropeable. He still talks about it today. It's the only time you ever see him upset about the whole yeah. process. He rang Andrew and told him in no uncertain terms, this is the greatest piece of shit you've ever seen. And it's it's a dumb rule. And the AFL, not only did they make us play our home prelim final at the MCG against, against uh, the Geelong Cats, mm. which was a big advantage for them, they should have won that game. I'm telling you, they were all over us that last quarter and they literally just kept missing shots and we somehow got through and made our fourth grand final. Had it been at home, uh, I have no doubt we would have flogged them. They, were, they wouldn't have got within 50 points. But the problem with that was the AFL had St Kilda and Port Adelaide game, which was a ripping game, and Port finally got over the line and got into a grand final, which is awesome for them. They'd been a star of the competition. They'd, they'd won minor premiership after minor premiership, the best home round team in that era. We, on the other hand, you know, we had traveled a bit more. We, we were, were very good. We knew we had another gear, but what the AFL did is allowed them to play on the Friday night, which they won, but made us play a whole 24 hours later at the MCG on our way. And back-to-back travels were always difficult for us. If you, if you saw our history, we, we didn't really flog teams. We, we might have won even in the good years, but often, you know, we we're, were susceptible to get to losses because of the, the travel. Anyway, so they make us play. So by the time we get home, it's Sunday, Sunday afternoon, and we have a, have a meeting, which Lee said he, he, he regrets doing. But, you know, Port Adelaide have got two two days, two full days of break 
So we were in front at half time, but they overran us. They just had so much energy. And it's all because of the AFL and Andrew Dimitri and their shit rules and their shit decisions. Mm-hmm. If they had some balls and Andrew was a good leader, he would have said, oh, look, we'll make it up to you later. They can have it at home. Um, you know, forget about it. Let them play Saturday afternoon game, which they, they often now do. The prelims are cl- much closer together. But because of Andrew and his just his shithead decisions and his horrible leadership, which he was prone to do. He had some great things, but then he would do some shit things. He made us play 24 hours later away and make us travel back. And that that was the era of Andrew Dimitri, if you don't know, like, you know, did some great things for the AFLPA, did some unbelievable things as a CEO, and then he did some absolutely horrible things. And he does horrible things uh, from time to time and gets exposed for it. And, you know, he's, a, he's an opinionated dude and he's got a big mouth. And if if uh, and, and if you go up against him, man, you, you'll get the – he's got a chip on his shoulder from all the racism he copped as a kid and he'll let you know he's just – he won't back down. So he's not the easiest guy to get along with. And in that era, he, he won the battle and we lost the war, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Lee wasn't wasn't too happy with him, and like you said, don't think he's forgiven him. He wasn't too happy with you either uh, after a column that you wrote, and that was that was kind of the beginning of the end, wasn't it? When it it kind of the relationship fell away a little bit, two thousand six, I think. Column, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, actually I was just on a podcast before this, and oh, yeah. I forgot about that, which seems crazy, but hmm. yeah, round one we played Geelong down in Geelong, Cadinia Park, whatever it's called now. Uh, GMBH, GMH, uh, yeah, GMHBA, yeah, or, or MDA, whatever the hell you want to call it, <laughs> on drugs down there, fitting and some of them. But yes, down there, we play down there, and for the first time ever, I'm playing sort of half forward on ball, and I'm getting three guys rotating through me every eight minutes. And I'm so tired chasing these guys all game. So I had my first column of the year with my new ghostwriter guy called Andrew Hamilton, which is ironic because he worked in the paper for years and now works at the, the Lions as the head media guy. Anyway, I said to him, mate, let's mention this. Oh, Lee's a good guy. He'll take it the right way. Well, f- was I wrong? Lee did not take it well. He took it as criticism and as he should, as he did, as you can't yeah. criticize humans because they'll spend the rest of their days trying to justify it. They do. Everyone does it. So in the end, um, he was, he was filthy. And that was really the beginning of the end. I think I was surprised it lasted all the way through to Jan, uh, July 21st before he sacked me and it just got too much. So I was, I was, uh, it was a bad, a bad player. I was leaking stuff to the media. I hated what he was doing. He was really trying to bully me. He'd get Caroline Wilson do stories on me. I, I knew where it was coming from. It was really bad. It was bad form on both of us. We're both at fault and we both did not help despite our meetings and, and our great relationship before that. And we had a, really good uh, working relationship. We always spoke about issues. We worked through it. He didn't always agree, but, you know, he understood where I was coming from. And for a lot of years, it was it was no problem. But, yeah, that was a bad idea. And and one I should have taken up privately with him, which I didn't. And then, uh, yeah, it cost me. I think the last game I played, I kicked three goals and won the game for us against North Melbourne down there, and that was it. And it's, it's always sad because it was really just me and Lee. It wasn't really the players. Yeah, yeah. And the fans, I grew up here, obviously, you know, the fans are, uh, Alliance fans through and through that they love what I brought. Uh, so there's a lot of division about Lee and myself, but it was, uh, we're both at fault. I've always said it's me publicly, but he knows he was, he didn't do things. He, he has plenty of things we could have both done better, but in the end, that was that. And 
I was out and he kept his job. Are you good now? You, you speak with Lee now? Yeah, yeah. We had coffee yeah. uh, when I came back. I moved back here August 1st last year. So I caught up with him and you know, anytime I see him, we always have a good chin wag. Look, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't ideal and he could talk about it and I could talk about it and we get asked about it, I'm sure. And Lee's got his series on it and I've got mine. In the end, there's no point worrying about it. We had a great relationship. We won three flags, nearly four. Won a brown low, played my best footy under him, yeah. made him a better coach, made him a better person. Uh, he made me a better player. Like, you know, there's so much more good. You can just look at the bad yeah. and just think, oh, well, you know, let's forget about it. There's too many issues. But in the end, you know, we had a coffee and, and you know, I'll play golf with him. We're going to have a, a reunion day in October up at Noosa Springs. He plays yeah. golf now. Not very good, but I'm sure he'll be there. <laughs> low little fades, you know, that he does down the middle. So, no, it's been <laughs> fun. He's always good to chat to. I always love seeing Lee. So, yeah. we've got so many, so many things to be grateful for. There's no point about the crap in the past mm. no brilliant yeah you moved to the dogs then and 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 you had two amazing years 09 i think was that was your best at the dogs i think you played in the prelim you get the best um the leading goal kicker for the dogs that year um did you you said that you well you didn't make the all-australian team that year for some unknown Definitely. reason i don't, don't know why you wouldn't have made it it was a phenomenal oh, no, year i know why because i was yeah. giving it to the afl and McCollum's. that's why so they they oh, yeah, made it a point not to put you in. They're sooks when they need to be. And I oh, don't get me wrong, mm. when when Chris Mainwaring was there and mm. was on the committee, he was a huge fan and a great fella and he saw my value on and off the field and he didn't care about the the bad press. He said, no, nah, he's the best player in that position, put him in there. Yeah. And when he left, I knew it would be a little bit more difficult. But as a small forward leading goal kicker in a prelim team, kicked nearly 50 goals. Yeah. 2009, I kicked uh, four goals in my 299th game and four goals in my 300th game. Like I, I was having <laughs> yeah. a good season. And it ended up getting me another year, which didn't quite work out in the end. But Barry Hall so came at the end of that year. It was great to have Baz. Baz and I have been mates for a long time and we're 10 days apart. We're born, born in 77. So, you know, we've got a lot of respect for each other. But, yeah, he, everyone just kept kicking into him. But, yeah, 2008, 2009, really good 2009. 2010, still played some good footy, just yeah. couldn't get access to the ball with Baz there. But, you know, I don't mind. We needed a big forward and, and he was wonderful. Mm. The, the dogs, the leadership you said wasn't fantastic there at the time and that probably they didn't like you being yourself like they didn't like the handstand um you ended up taking less money to stay on because you were getting money from the media as well i think or to, to keep bigger players on they made you give up a, a lot of things at the doggies and then eventually you, you got the sack how did how did that eventuate yeah that was a one-way street let me tell you like uh, i think with the dogs for a long time when i came in see in brisbane my teammates, I, I grew up with a lot of them. You know, they saw me as 16, 17, 18. I'd been all the way through. They knew about uh, nearly died when I was 15. They knew about they were there at my mum's funeral. So they knew all that stuff. But by the time I got to the dogs, I'm 30. I'm sort of an outsider coming in. I'm perceived to be on big money. It was good money, but it wasn't big money. But, you know, it, it did help the club. It, it started to attract the right players. And I sort of set the time, which I'm happy mm-hmm. that we could do that. Um, they were all good. Well, you know, 2007 wasn't as good as we liked, but 2008 and 9 and obviously 2010, uh, we got the prelims. But when they started, they started to try and micromanage me and, and we're talking about players got the shits with some of the things I said in columns. They f***ing had a silk. And then I started to get some players offside and that unfortunately, I had all these younger guys onside, but they didn't have no power and influence. But I get the sort of the older the A team, we called them, you know, GNC Accuser, Ben Hudson, you know, uh, Bob Murphy, you know, Scotty West. I, uh, 
no problem with Scotty. Scotty and I are mates. Same with Brad Johnson because they're, they're my age. They understood and they have great respect for what we do and we're also friends. But, you know, Jens here, accuser couldn't understand it. Um, you know, Matty Boyd couldn't understand it. He, they, they couldn't get their head around. They just wanted to say, well, we think team success is you do everything the way the team does. Mm. And Brisbane was the opposite. Like, yeah, well, you do your role, you play your role, but when we win, you do a handstand, we win, everyone's happy. They, that team knew that that was my expression of individuality, but they also knew that it's all part of it. Like everyone's yeah. an individual. We need that. Where well, the Bulldogs just couldn't get their head around that. So in the end, it was their excuse to kind of stop the handstand, which I was happy to do to be a team player. Uh, and then they wanted me to stop my columns in 2010 after the uh, the homosexual article, which is fine. I mean, I'm still right on that one. I mean, that was, you know, 11 years ago and, and still no, no no plays ever come out because, I, you know, in the end I said, well, why would you bother? I mean, there's no point. We don't really care. And, and they, the wording I'm, was changed. But sorry, Aka, the wording was changed a bit because oh, it went through, went through a few different people, sub-editors, and so it wasn't actually your words the way that it came out and the headline probably made it worse than what you're actually yeah. saying. Yeah, good point there, Jimmy. Yeah, if you look at uh, my second book, which is Open Season, you'll see what I wrote and what they changed. And, yeah. and in in the sub-editor's uh, discretion, so sub-editors are basically uh, shit-ass journalists who could never get a job writing, but what they do is they put sexy titles on your article. And nowhere in my article that I talk about a closet or staying in a closet or anything like that, but the title said that. So it's stuck yeah. in people's mind, brewing yeah. from them. But I had to deal with the player backlash, not just the hate from the, you know, the, the small minority that actually care about that shit and actually have an opinion. Oh, I could give you give two shits. So it's just enough column to me. But those guys in particularly Robert Murphy and Ben Hudson just said, I didn't want, I don't want to play with this guy. And that really was the end for me because those guys are quite powerful and very influential. So they were happy to tell everyone in that group, even guys that mightn't agreed by themselves, you know, Brad Johnson or Scotty West or even, even Matty Boyd, they not necessarily on board, but they were happy to just to sort of say, well, there's no support for him. And they put Brad Johnson in the middle of that and said, well, Brad had to come and tell me, mate, there's no support. You can't get a game. The players are offside. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mate, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you know, they're putting you in the middle of this and these blokes are sitting on the other side. I knew who they were and they, they didn't have the guts to talk to me about it. I said, man, that's not leadership. They're putting you in a spot where it's affecting our friendship and relationship for, cause they, they don't have the balls. Like give us a spell. So nothing was going to change in the end. You know, I had I had probably a, the most influential playing group, including off-field. You had Luke Darcy running his mouth, which he does often, and then Chris Grant all of a sudden turned against me out of nowhere. He's a good fella, Chris. I don't know what, what planet he decided to jump on, but he, he decided to go and said, nah, you, you know, you're not doing the right thing. And then I had Rodney Ede not backing me, which is a bad when you don't have the senior coach. And then I had idiots like David Smorgan, who was the president at the time, you know, he he just had no idea how to deal with the media, no idea how to deal with me, couldn't handle any negativity because he was always like, oh, we we got to protect uh, our relationship with the AFL to give us money at the AFL, give him heat, he'd completely shit himself. So it wasn't great. And the CEO at the, at the time, Campbell Rose, was good, but he was he had illness in the family and wasn't there, so I had no protection there. And then James Fantasia, the boss of footy, was pretty good. You know, he wasn't able to really uh, get the cards stacked in my favor so it was just a bad situation mm. and when you after that i think you spoke about a meeting when when they told you and you went to your locker and emptied it out it was it obviously you're in tears and and it was an emotional moment was was james fantasia the only one who came to console you or or yeah he was yeah james uh he was you know he was 
you know, at least he's got a heart, I suppose. I mean, it's a difficult business, footy, but yeah. no one's ever happy when they finish footy on any level, uh, you know. But all I thought about when I went back is, mate, why don't you just give me one game to say goodbye to the fans? I don't give a shit. They'll come watch and I'll thank them and then it will be done. But they couldn't even do that. So, hmm. you know, I go into this meeting. I've got, you know, the kid David Smorgan. I've got, uh, you know, Rodney Eade. I've got, uh, I think Campbell Rose might have been there. I've got uh, Simon Garlic, who was the CEO at the time. Um, James Fantasia. I think uh, I think uh, Brad Johnson being the captain was in there. And I knew once I walked in, they were, they were going to sack me. It wasn't really that difficult. But when I went in there, I couldn't help myself. I'm like, uh, I looked at David Smorgan. I said, what the f- is, is he doing in here? It's not a footy meeting. And, uh, you know, because he knows nothing about footy. He thinks he does, but he doesn't. He wouldn't have a clue about how to be a player or how to work within a group. He's, you know, he's just an external nuisance to me. So, anyway, he's sitting there and he says, uh, you know, we're going to terminate your contract as of today, all that kind of shit. So, going to the locker was the realisation that I'd, I'd, you know, obviously never going to play in the AFL again. That was it. Uh, Not an easy day because, you know, you you put your whole life into it. You spent 16 years in it. You've done it since you was in year 12 when I started, like it was my first job and, mm. and it's given me so much. And here I have this horrible ending where, you know, they, they were sponsored by work, like the Bulldogs yet here they were bullying the shit out of me and, and getting away with it. I'm like, how does this work? How's the world work? And it just shows you, it teaches you that the life isn't fair and that if you get groups offside, no matter what kind of groups are, workplace groups, you can be also a lamb to the slaughter. So how to be better next time. And it's happened many other times, you know, where you get in the workplace or you're getting bullied and you get better at dealing with it. But yeah, it was a, it's a bad situation in the end. And I, I think looking back, everyone learned lots, good and bad. Would they have done it differently? Well, they should have. If they got any brains, they would have. Um, but we'll never get a chance to do it again. So anyway, we all move forward. And I have no doubt that everyone in that room is better for that experience and worse in the same, same breath. Mm. Yeah, but sad because it put kind of the perception that you were an individual and not a team player, which is part of the reason why maybe you haven't got a job back in the AFL, even though you've tried. And I think you said Adam Simpson once said to you, you know, we only want team players here, which is why you didn't get an assistant role. Um, right, yeah, but, no, are you, say that. but are you happy now that you're out of that AFL world? Are you you're happy what you're doing now? Or are you still disappointed you didn't get another gig in, in the AFL? Oh, yeah, it's sort of funny. Like uh, sometimes I see the guys that I play with who I knew knew about a, a fifth of what I did about footy and I'd coached and had great success coaching. I knew I'd had lots of value because I'd been through so much and mm. I've got so many great programs that we could run that are just elite that are still not used really widely in the AFL that would just separate my team. So that bit was disappointing. It's also the strength of the leader to actually have – so like Choco Williams would hire me no problem. Like, you know, if I – push came to shove because he knows you can deal with different personalities where other guys don't have the confidence. So I understand why they wouldn't give me a job in the AFL and that's okay. But the reality is, you know, I had the cred. Uh, I'm, I'm as good a footy person and my footy brain, you come sit with me at the footy and, and I'll tell you how we're going to win the next quarter. And I'm just looking at the game. I don't deal with those guys every day. Like it's such a shame. But then after 11 years last year, you know, we so many great things happen. End up getting my auctioneering license, real estate license, moving back to Brisbane. My two startups are now ready to fly in AR and, and crypto. And having been in foreign exchange in the media, there's a big journey there. But you have no idea how it is great to be out of the system because I see some, a lot of my teammates, they institutionalize, they're great fellas, but, you know, they pretty much couldn't hold down a normal, normal job 
if they could save themselves for for many more years coming up. Real estate's great because, as you know, your wife can work there how she wants. There's, there's other things too, like footy after hours. There's there's public holidays where you're working and doing all that, calling people. But it's uh, like everything. I think the relief of being out the AFL, not having it be part of my my regular salary. Um, was relieving, I will say that. It's a shame in some way, but it's okay. And then you saw with what happened with COVID. I mean, coaches got chopped, wages got chopped. Like it was, it's been pretty bad. So in the end, the universe looks after you, uh, right or wrong. And then you sort of dodge the bullet in that way too. So, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of glad people go, oh, do you do anything with lines? And like, hell no, why would I want to do that? I can't bet on the games. <laughs> like it's illegal if you work for them. So, so you know. You got to you got to take it. You look on the bright side, you know. Yeah. Uh, I have a great life now. I have three daughters. It's too busy. You work seventy hours a week, like your wife does in real estate, and you know, you got phones ringing, a bunch of stuff to do. You know, it's 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 okay. There's lots of purpose. Yeah, Aki. At the start, you were speaking about how at Brisbane there was different personalities and that sort of thing. I speak to a lot of past players who say they actually didn't enjoy game day. Like it was a lot of pressure. They they liked being around the boys during the week, but game day wasn't their favourite. For you, it looks like that was your favourite, but you were born to play footy. You loved playing footy. Is that true? And why why do you think you were like that? Was there something growing up? Could you was it a competitive nature that you always had, or what what is it? Oh, just it is simply this. You know, when you play well in front of a big crowd, I tell everyone, like, people don't realise being a professional athlete. So they talk about athletes who are pros, like myself. We die twice, you know, when you die when your career stops because you're literally, you're a fully grown adult and you've got to start again. Even if blokes went to uni and all that, you still got to finish your degree or mm-hmm. get a new one or start again and, and go and find another life. And that's the reason it's so hard is because we, I could hear the crowd when I was out my own. Because I could hear, I could the noise would quickly rise, and I knew I could play on. Yeah. If you play like it, they have to with no crowd. You have to wait for someone to tell you, or just guess. And so the beauty is, I could go and run and kick a goal in the first quarter. Could kick one in the second and kick two in the last. Well, I get four of the naturalist highs you'll ever get within your brain. That's four times in a game, and yeah. I could do that over many games during the season. There is not a drug on the planet. And you can, Ben Cousins will tell you, there's not one that gets anywhere near it as much as it, it it's good. But the reason it's so good is because you've earned it, you worked hard, and the crowd just gives you this. So that rush is just the best thing. And if you don't live for it, then and playing in front of a crowd is not for you. And there's times where, you, you know, people are laughing at you because you made an error and that you do feel bad. But most of the time when you're kicking goals, you're doing the great thing, man, that is the coolest thing you can ever do. And there's nothing that gets close to it. Not a golf shot, uh, you know, not a catching a fish, you know. it's just There's nothing on the planet. You know, you can have a drink. You could probably go out and do all the drugs in the world and still wouldn't get close. So that that's why I loved it. Uh, you know, it's addictive, but it's also, yeah, it's stressful game day because, you know, it's the unknown. You can get injured. And as an athlete, you're getting paid for your body. And whenever you get injured, it's the worst because you get all of a sudden you go from being indestructible to to feeling your confidence gets shattered every time you do a hamstring or a quad or or you get you get hit or you get a you know brain you might get a head collision or something where you're a bit dazed for a few days. So there's a lot of the unknown. And then of course the relief and the happiness when you've played well, played your role, helped the team win, to sing the song. So you get the good and the bad all in the all in the day. But you've got to 
it, whether you like it or not, accept it. It's all part of it. And there's not a game in the hundred, you know, 325 of them that I wasn't as nervous as shit. I played with uh, Casey Stoner, who's two-time MotoGP winner. He's a mate yeah. of mine I've known him since he was 13, just down the coast here. And I was asking, I was talking to him about it, yeah. and you know, he, he was scared shitless. And he's, you know, he's on a bike that's going 330 yeah. k's an hour and going around corners and winning and whooping everyone, and he was scared shitless. Mm. And most motorcycle riders never tell you about just how scary it is, and it's scary for us, but it's also, you know, you're willing to go and take those risks to get there because the reward, the high, like it is for Casey, end of the race where you see your team, you worked all weekend, you won the race, your great battle with another rider or a great battle with another player and another team. Man, there's just nothing like it. And you can mm. get that every week. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Hey, with every one of my guests, I like to win with 10 quick questions, Aka. Let's um, do it. Got to get the right. golf, so let's do it. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm weary of the time. Got to get out the Warner, which is about 30 minutes away, so it's all, all good. Right. 10 quick questions, mate. First thing that pops to your head, all right? Okay. Uh, your favourite food? Is Japanese food. Favourite movie? Favourite movie is uh, Shawshank Redemption. Favourite teammate of all time? Favourite teammate of all time is probably Craig McCray. If you could live anywhere... Oh, no, Dale Morris, Dale Morris. Dale Morris, oh, change up. There you go. All right. Uh, If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? If it wasn't Brisbane, it'd be Tokyo. Tokyo. Best city on the planet. Especially now with the Olympics, you know. Oh, well, that's true. But I've lived there. Yeah. Mount Fuji is the best joint on the planet. It's crazy, group. They're polite to you. Yeah. You know, there's not food floating around. Everything's run well. Albeit they've got problems. They've got good and bad, but it's it's wonderful. All right. What's your favourite quote? My favourite quote is, excuses are for losers. I like that. If you could have dinner with any celebrity or sports person in the world, who would it be? Michael Jordan. What's one thing that not many people know about you? Uh, uh, probably the one thing that surprises people is that I can speak four languages. So I was going to say, yes. Your Spanish is one of them. What's the, what are the others? Yeah, so Spanish, uh, Japanese, Auslan, and English, of course. Yeah, I So, uh, yeah, people say my English is bad, but, you know. It's, <laughs> no, it's very good. You also play chess, don't you? That's interesting. Yes, I can play chess. Yes, uh, my physio was Victor Popov who taught me how to play, play chess and, man, those Russians, I tell you, those Cossacks, yeah. man, they're good. They're good. Um, there's probably the one thing people are more shocked about that, that I can actually do those things. So yeah. I don't know. It's good. I remember words really well. I can speak a bit of Russian too, which helps. Yeah, what's what was the most enjoyable moments of your footy life? Uh, probably, I would say the probably the 2003 grand final. Win that. Kick five goals to who? I have to put myself under too much pressure. And it was a game I played. I, I was the first time I ever really went hard after a tagger from West Coast. And uh, I said, I'm going I'm to kick five on him. And I did unheard of, really, in Aussie yeah. rules because you got so many more factors. Boxers do it because they only got yourself and some golfers might do it, but it's very rare that anyone would talk it up like that. So I was happy to talk it up, but we put the pressure on myself. But delivering was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could coach any AFL team at the moment, who would it be? Well, I'd have to say the Lions because I live here and it's bloody awesome. I think uh, if I was didn't didn't think about it with my heart on my head, I'd probably just you know Melbourne would be a good team to coach now. The Bulldogs because they're they're going to be pretty much either in the grand final or, or win it. So you know, other than Brisbane, of course, I'd say that. Yep. But you you wouldn't mind coaching Gold Coast because you know they'd be good to get them in their first final series and 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 send a bit of history. But yeah, I'd say Brisbane. All right, last one. Your favourite song, Acker. My favourite song, right? Yeah, I'll uh, chuck it on for you. This is how yeah. well I'm going. Yeah. 
my favorite song. So whenever I get in, uh, you know, I feel like this, uh, I always play this song to my kids and I always turn it up. So yeah, I'll see if you can hear it into the audio, but uh, it's, it's pretty good this one already. Good pump up song. Always play that with my girls, and I get in the car after a game. We win, get under the go under the tunnel under yeah. the story bridge, and I always say because my girls have their friends come, and I yeah. say, "Hey girls, you ever heard this song?" Yeah. And of course, you know they're not from that's Tribal Dance from Two Unlimited, which is it's a nineteen ninety song. Yeah. And man, we get in there, got the Tesla, <laughs> or crank it up. And the whole car just starts because of the sound system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it boom, 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 boom. Everyone looks at it like we're idiots, but, you know, who cares? We won. That's it. Enjoy yourself. That's very. I enjoyed myself today, mate. I can't thank you enough for coming on, honestly. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on today, mate. Good questions, brother. I've done a lot of podcasts. Good questions. You really knew your subject. I know you get lots of guys you're probably not overly interested in, but you knew a lot of depth. That's not easy. So, yeah, good work. Thanks, man. I'm very interested in you, mate. Growing up, I just uh, couldn't stop watching you, and I love your stuff in the media I said you were honest and I love that about you man. we never yeah, saw it before it's a thankless job but don't worry unless you, you knew what you were going to get but listen here Jimmy good luck with the upcoming fatherhood it's a, it's a hell of a journey that never ends you're going to enjoy that one good and the bad change the nappies watch out for the teething and of course when they become teenagers when they get to 15 it's, it's <laughs> an interesting year but mate uh, and good luck to your wife I hope she sells lots of places because uh, she could make a lot of money before she has to go on maternity leave but it's an exciting year for you brother Thank you, mate. I appreciate it, Aka. That's all right, brother. Time for golf. All right, mate. Enjoy. Enjoy. I'll speak to you soon, buddy. Go 400. All right. See you, brother. See you, mate. Bye.